Listener Production. Hello and welcome to The Briefing. Are you expecting to inherit much money? Well, in today's episode, Annika Smethurst looks at the huge wealth transfer on the way from baby boomers to millennials. Well, to some millennials. We're probably going to see around $224 billion a year being transferred by 2050 from baby boomers to Gen X's, Y's and Z's. Yeah, it's a huge number, but what will it mean for people who aren't getting any of that money? And how will it impact young people wanting to crack the housing market? Uh, that story coming up in our briefing in the second half of this episode. But first, Katrina Blouse is here for the headlines. It's Wednesday, June 8th. Well, homeowners are reassessing their budgets today as the banks begin passing on that 50 basis point interest rate rise from the Reserve Bank yesterday. Yeah, as we mentioned on the briefing yesterday, economists were predicting between a 25 and 40 point increase, but the Reserve Bank went much harder, increasing the interest rate by 50 basis points. That means it's up at 0.85%. Australians expected higher interest rates today, but that doesn't make this news any less difficult for them. For an average mortgage of $330,000 remaining, it's about $87 a month that Australian homeowners will have to find. That's Treasurer Jim Chalmers there. Of course, many young people have mortgages much bigger than that. Mm. Uh, So this big move from the RBA is an acknowledgement that inflation is going to be even worse than predicted. The latest figure was 5.1%, but it's tipped to go over 6% now. Yeah, but their forecasts say it's expecting to come down to 2 to 3% by the end of the year, but it's just been mm. so unpredictable. So we'll see if that actually happens. Now, Westpac was the first big bank to pass on the cash rate hike in full. And depending when you're listening to this, I'd expect the others may have followed already. A lot of people are sort of pretty worried about this because it's going to increase their costs at a time when everything else is going up as yeah. well. yeah. But I'm not seeing anyone criticise the Reserve Bank for getting it wrong here. This inflation problem is a really big one. But I think where they did make a huge mistake, and they've even admitted it, saying it was an embarrassing error, which was telling everyone that rates wouldn't go up until 2024. Mm, And that mm. gave a lot of people the confidence to borrow big amounts of money. Yes. And now here we are, the first... We're in the first half of 2022, and they're already jacking up rates 0.75%. Oh, and not only that, borrowing huge amounts of money at a time when the housing market was at an all-time high. So it's left a lot of people in some pretty dire straits. And the cost of power, which is another big cost pressure for a lot of households, is at the top of the government's agenda today. Energy Minister Chris Bowen is holding a crisis meeting with his state and territory counterparts to respond to the East Coast electricity crisis. Yeah, so this is really going to bite, particularly on the 1st of July when those prices are adjusted. And one of the ideas on the table is paying baseload energy providers to maintain extra capacity by either investing in projects or maintaining their existing facilities. Yeah, so currently a quarter of our coal-fired capacity is down due to maintenance, faults and fuel shortages. So I guess the idea is to give a buffer so that we're maintaining that extra capacity for problems like this, like maintenance or fuel shortages. Yeah, which has been exacerbated by the war in Ukraine, of course. They'll also discuss the potential for new domestic gas reserves and rejigging the gas trigger, which forces exporters to keep more gas in the domestic market. Yeah, so at the moment, that trigger wouldn't take effect. Even if they enacted it now, it wouldn't come into effect until next year. So they could change the way that works um, so that it could respond much more quickly. 
The Prime Minister Anthony Albanese is in Darwin today on his way home from Indonesia and he'll be talking about some very exciting news that NASA is going to be launching three rockets from Arnhem Space Centre later this month. Yeah, it'll be the first NASA launch from a commercial facility outside the US. 75 people from NASA will be in Australia for the launches, which will investigate phenomena that can only be seen from the Southern Hemisphere. Pretty cool, I reckon. Uh, Then tomorrow, New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern will land in Australia to meet our new PM. This is also an opportunity for new conversations to be had on aspects of the bilateral relationship that have been difficult for a number of years, namely elements of Australia's deportation policy and the rights of New Zealanders in Australia. Yeah, so what she's talking about there is that Australia can currently cancel a New Zealander's visa due to a substantial criminal record or character grounds, which means New Zealand citizens can be deported from Australia even if they've lived their whole life here. Now, clearly, Jacinda Ardern hasn't been able to get any headway with Scott Morrison on that, Mm. and I guess she's thinking that maybe a more friendly uh, Labor counterpart might be able to do something in that space. China has made its first direct comments regarding that close encounter between an Australian and Chinese fighter jet in the South China Sea. So a Chinese defence spokesperson has said that the Australian plane ignored repeated warnings to turn around and accused Australia of dangerous and provocative acts. So the RAAF jet had been conducting routine surveillance, this is late last month, when the Chinese jet flew very close and set off flares and dropped chaff in its path. Yeah, dangerous and provocative is pretty strong language. Uh, That encounter happened near the Paracel Islands, which China claims as its own, but uh, Vietnam and Taiwan also have claims on that area. And Anthony Albanese has labelled the Chinese interception a dangerous act of aggression. So strong words from both sides over two planes flying in a very contested part of the world. Mm. And some really good news to finish off the headlines. The Billow Wheeler family are going to begin their trip home to Billow today. They'll be flying from Perth to Brisbane first and then they'll be arriving in the central Queensland town on Friday, which is just in time to celebrate their daughter Tarnika's fifth birthday. She spent every single birthday so far in detention, so this is going to be a big one. Yeah, and this all comes after the new government intervened and gave the family bridging visas. This is a really big time for them. It's going to be very emotional. They haven't travelled on a plane together since all this started and all their previous flights have been very traumatic. That's their friend Angela Fredericks who will be flying with them. The Murugapan family has had to go through four years of uncertainty. It's hard to even imagine how they've done that and, and they're still fighting for permanent residency. And what a moment this is going to be in Biloela in time for Tarnika's birthday, as you mentioned, but there's also a big multicultural festival in the small Queensland town <laughs> over the weekend. So, bit of a It'll scene, be going I reckon. Off. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Katrina. Annika Smithhurst is about to take us into a really interesting discussion about the transfer of wealth from baby boomers to millennials. Are you getting any? And what does it mean for society as a whole? Welcome 
to the show. I am Ellen, and like many of you, I am a baby boomer. We are the generation that grew up drinking from garden hoses and drinking orange tang and drinking from our parents' liquor cabinet. Baby boomers were born between 1946 and 1964. They call us that because after the uh, World War II, there was a boom of babies being born. People were like, we lived through the war, let's make whoopee. For you millennials, making whoopee is uh, like Netflix and chill. That's famous baby boomer, Alan DeGeneres. They're describing the differences between boomers and Gen Xers and millennials. But one thing she failed to mention is, of course, that as a generation, baby boomers are pretty rich compared to the following two generations. But over the next 20 years, much of their wealth will be transferred to a new generation. In fact, as baby boomers age, inheritance and gifts are expected to top a massive 237 billion, that's billion with a B, by 2050. Now, not everybody's going to do this. Billionaires Bill Gates and Warren Buffett don't want their children inheriting their billions. And Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg has committed to giving away 99% of his fortune before he dies. They are the exception, though. In 2018 and 19, the average inheritance was $125,000. And the Productivity Commission is forecasting a four-fold increase in that over the next 30 years. But is this wealth transfer just entrenching fortunes in rich families? And is there anything governments can do to help, I guess, fast-track this huge pool of money to a younger generation sitting around and waiting for it to land? Alex Vikovic is the wealth editor at the Australian Financial Review and is here to answer these questions. Alex, thanks for joining us. Now, each generation has traditionally been richer than the last one on average. Is that a trend we're going to see continue? We don't know what's going to happen in the future, right? And and this is one of the big questions for for economists and for our Productivity Commission and, and for Treasury, right? They make assumptions and those assumptions are often based on the way that housing markets and the share market has performed because they've been the two sort of main drivers of wealth historically. But we don't know. The estimate from the Productivity Commission last year in the first kind of proper study of wealth transfers in Australia was that there is going to be a large pool and that inheritances are going to continue and we're probably going to see around $224 billion a year being transferred by 2050 from baby boomers to Gen Xs, Ys and Zs. Where is most Mm. of that money tied up? Is it in property and is it just a simple case that, you know, many of these people, baby boomers, bought houses years ago for not Mm. much money and it's accumulated wealth or where do we see it tied up? Yeah, look, you're right, and, and it's different for, for different segments of the economy and for, for different groups of people. Um, the question is controversial, as you would know, Annika operating in Canberra a lot, because this whole area of retirement policy is mm. fraught with politics. The superannuation industry from its inception has been at war. You've got kind of the, the corporate banks and wealth managers that are, that are largely ASX-listed or US-owned um, and are represented by the Financial Services Council on the one hand, and then you've got the kind of industry super fund who are structurally linked or at least historically linked to the trade unions on the other. This whole question ties into some real deep uh, ideological questions around the role of, for example, compulsory superannuation um, versus other modes of wealth creation. And the uh, review last year by Treasury, the Retirement Income Review, came up with some findings that were, of course, controversial on this topic. And it it sort of tried to settle the matter and say, actually, home ownership is the key tenant of wealth creation. Now, the superannuation industry obviously didn't like that. 
But when you look at the other end of the spectrum, the Productivity Commission has also found that when it comes to poorer people, actually compulsory superannuation is the biggest driver of their inheritances. And that is one of the things that is actually driving a, a decrease in financial inequality. So, you know, it is different for different segments of the economy. I think you could look at the same data and, and some economists would say this is a, a big win for compulsory superannuation if you look at inheritances across the board. And others would say, of course, that it's all about private property and the home. I think it's a difficult question. And the way that this sort of area of economics operates, Annika, as I'm sure you'll appreciate, is people pump in a lot of assumptions and they sometimes get the sort of findings that they're after. And often the, the think tanks and the research who operate in this space have, I think it would be fair to say, um, one view or the other when it comes to their kind of biases in, in retirement policy and, and, and what sort of asset classes or structures should be kind of at the core of our policy thinking. Do you think this generation, these people that are struggling to get into the housing market, really are holding out and that many of them won't be able to buy a property until they inherit money from that older generation? Look, possibly, and, and certainly that's what the um, projections would show. And I think that's the real lived experience of certainly myself and a lot of other people mm. who are in this age demographic, right? You know, the Productivity Commission said last year, well, actually, the bank of mum and dad is, is overstated um, if you look at the numbers. But you only need to go to an auction on the weekend to see that it's a real <laughs> thing, right? Um, mm. and, and so we know that um, home ownership is the goal for a lot of younger people when it comes to wealth creation. And it is at least seen as or is, you know, realistically out of reach for many in the short term. But what I think has changed in the last two years, particularly during the pandemic, Annika, which which really the financial services industry and the investment industry globally didn't anticipate, was that millennials and, and Gen Zs would simply say, well, we're not going to wait around for an inheritance. We're going to actually make use of some of this technological change that's occurred, and we're going to invest our relatively small amounts of money in financial markets directly, and we're going to seek a return. And it's pretty significant. You know, like we're talking about maybe half a million, maybe more Australians who are under the age of 40 and who have done their first trade in the last two years. And, you know, we've got uh, some estimates. I mean, there's a, there's a wealth management outfit called NetWealth who estimates there's 1.9 million Australians under 40 who are collectively holding 1.8 trillion in wealth and have got investment portfolios worth an average of 700 grand. So there is an emerging group of younger people who are on higher salaries uh, who may or may not be in the property market, but they're investing, you know, what they've got into markets and, and it's having an impact. Um, and we saw that with the GameStop saga at the beginning of last year where, um, you know, people power and, and a whole bunch of young people operating in Reddit threads and on social media mm. were actually able to kind of wrong foot a, a Wall Street hedge fund um, by what's called a short squeeze attack. But essentially, they used social media to push up the price of a stock and they exposed a Wall Street <laughs> hedge fund manager in, in the process, right? So we are seeing that this democratisation of access to markets is having a real impact on the global financial system. And I think that's probably, you know, causally related to what we all feel, which is um, housing is difficult. So that's a really interesting trend, Annie, because we've never really had that before, like participation in the share market has almost always been an exclusive activity by people who are already wealthy, already have that knowledge. We've never seen 
regular people, people who work in hospitality, people in their early 20s investing, you know, a few cents in the share market here and there. And the power of compound interest, if you're a, you know, a Warren Buffett fan, um, (laughs) would suggest that over decades, some of those people may end up being quite wealthy if they make good decisions over that time, even though they're contributing very small amounts. So so this is going to be a really interesting dynamic, um, whether ultimately this participation in markets is going to reduce inequality over time. Having said that, there's a lot more risk involved in some of the um, investments people are making, young people are making. If you look at cryptocurrency markets, which are really, you know, in their infancy and and really untested, we don't know where that's going to go and how that's going to play out. And certainly uh, it's not a market that you would describe as safe as houses, right? So um, we'll we'll see how it plays out. But I think that's um, certainly changing the game. Now, let me end any political career I might have wanted before it even begins. Death taxes. Um, Both parties have ruled them out. They're used as political weapons, as this sort of don't come after our money. But given the growing pool of money caught up in inheritance, surely it's logical at some stage uh, that a government will look to tax it. Now, I'm not saying I'm open to it, but it (laughs) could be done in a way I would think that, you know, is quite equal. We all die. Um, You don't know. You don't know the tax you've paid because you're dead. So Mm, is there mm. any appetite for it? And from a policy sense, is it actually smart economics? Well, I don't think there'd be any policy for it at the uh, editorial board of the Financial Review. <laughs> but, um, but, 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 you know, uh, I, say, I noticed, Annika, you're adopting some uh, some Republican language there and calling it a death tax. And I think that gives you a sense of how um, emotive this debate would be mm. if it would to play out in Australia. I don't know if, if you would agree, but I don't think there's a serious debate being had in Australia about mm. this. But you do, of course, see on social media that there are pockets of the community who, who, who feel very strongly that um, that inheritance is inherently unfair. And I think that's an argument that can be made, right, and that, that's logical. So it really comes down to, to people's personal ethics. I think it would be worth pointing out that the Productivity Commission found one of the things last year that, that it found that was perhaps surprising was this idea of what it called relative wealth equality. So it was saying that actually poorest people benefit most from inheritance because as a share of, of their worth, actually inheritances, whether it's a small amount of compulsory super, like sub 50 grand, or, or whether it's um, a car often or, or, or an asset mm. like that, it makes a huge difference to their lives. Now, some economists and, and, and some critics would look at that and say that's, that's you know, basically um, bulldust because, uh, of course, you can still be in poverty and, and, and have bequeathed to you a Toyota Camry, right? I mean, it, mm. it's not necessarily going to give people a standard of living in retirement. The facts would bear out that it's not only, at least in Australia, wealthy people who are receiving inheritances. It is an ingrained part of our culture and it does seem to benefit people right across the spectrum. If it was to be done away with, then, you know, we we could have a serious debate about that. But of course, you know, I think inherent to the concept of private property is the ability to bequeath it to whoever they wish, right? And and whether people disagree with that or not, it would be a pretty major change to to the common law and to our way of viewing um, wealth creation if that were to be um, taxed to a large degree. But, you know, I think a battle of ideas, it's worth having. Alex, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Annika. Tomorrow on The Briefing, the story of a Chinese-Australian newsreader who was taken into custody in August 2020, still hasn't been released, and her family, tired of the quiet diplomacy, are speaking out. They want more intervention.
listener.